So this is actually going to be sort of a combination of a Dharma talk and a book report and a group discussion. <laughs> so I hope that uh, whatever you, whatever expectations you brought tonight of what was going to happen, you can let go of. Let's see. I was recently inspired by um, reading this book uh, called Faith, uh, Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience by Sharon Salzberg. Some of you may know her from her book on loving-kindness meditation. She came, she came here a couple weeks ago and gave a uh, reading from this book and also talked about what motivated her to write it. And her talk really inspired me to look a little bit more closely at um, the whole idea of faith, particularly in the Buddhist context. And... and um, what it, what it is for me personally. I think faith is something that has, is um, maybe kind of a controversial term in our culture. I think it, it might bring up images of kind of blind adherence to some religious doc, doctrine or some practice or set of behaviors or beliefs. Or that it might be something that separates us, makes there's those of us who are believers and non-believers. And within the, the group of believers, there's all sorts of different beliefs that can be um, one can have faith in. So I found it really helpful in, in reading this book to start to examine... Um, how can this be useful for my own practice, for my own um, work on um, liberation? And one of the things that Sharon talked about was that um, faith can really be seen not as an object, something that we either have or don't have, but as a quality of heart and, and of mind that can be cultivated and helps bring us more openly into our lives. So I wanted to start actually by reading from a dictionary. Now that seems kind of a not very interesting thing to do, but um, there's a Buddhist dictionary that um, I became aware of a few months ago. And in... The, the Pali language, which is the language that the teachings of the Buddha were first um, written down in, the word that um, we associate with faith is sadha. And the sadha is translated as faith or confidence. Uh, I've also seen translations of it as um, trust or conviction. says, a Buddhist is said to have faith if they believe in the Buddha's enlightenment or in the three jewels, that is, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, by taking refuge in them. Their faith, however, should be reasoned and rooted in understanding. So this is not some kind of blind adherence. And they are asked to investigate and test the object of their faith, 
A Buddhist faith is not in conflict with the spirit of inquiry. And doubt about dubitable, dubitable things is admitted and inquiring into them is encouraged. The faculty of faith, sadhi indriya, should be balanced with that of wisdom, panya indriya. Faith is called the seed of all wholesome states because according to um, explanation, it inspires the mind with confidence and determination for launching out to cross the flood of samsara. So one of the things that that is emphasized there is that faith is really um, developed in concert with wisdom, that there isn't, um, that that, um, faith requires some balance. And in the teachings, there are five faculties or five powers that are uh, developed with meditation. And um, and these are um, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment or wisdom. Now, you're probably all familiar with the, the third one, mindfulness. That's the the main meditation practice that is taught here is developing mindfulness of what's happening in the present moment. And it's said that you can't have too much mindfulness. So you can just keep developing that and developing it, and you don't have to worry about balancing that with something else. But the other four kind of come in pairs. So energy and concentration need to be balanced. And... We often develop, there, there's a sep, uh, somewhat different meditation form for developing concentration, which um, we actually had a class in, in this back in May. And concentration helps still the mind so that we can see more clearly what's going on. But if the mind is, becomes too still without a balancing amount of energy, you can fall asleep, or the mind is said to sink. Likewise, if there's too much energy and not enough concentration, then you can become restless and and the mind drifts off in many different directions. So through both mindfulness practice itself also can develop concentration, but through concentration practice, one can develop both concentration and energy. And then the final pair is faith and wisdom. And those also need to be balanced. That as we, as we gather insights, we, we can start to discern what's going on. But discernment without, without faith Um, is said to be able to lead to um, cunning so that we can see things, but 
that there isn't necessarily that opening of the heart and that feeling of connectedness with others that that makes the the wisdom skillful. In Sharon's discussion in in her book about um, faith, she actually describes three stages of faith. The first stage is called bright faith. And that's a level of um, very much like falling in love, of having an experience perhaps with a teacher or being in a certain place or having conditions in a certain way where a feeling of openness and connectedness and trust emerge. And in her book, she describes her first uh, trip to Bodh Gaya in India, the city where the Buddha was enlightened, and being under the tree, which is considered to be um, a descendant of the exact tree that the Buddha was sat under when he was enlightened, and um, meeting a, a wise Tibetan teacher under that tree. All of these conditions and experiences increased her, her faith that there was a potential for, for leading a happy, more liberated life. In my own experience, my first experience of bright faith was in uh, the very first sitting that I came to, actually in in Palo Alto at the Friends Center. Um, I was hopelessly obsessed with a woman, and I, I really thought that if only she would become obsessed with me, that life would be wonderful. That uh, sounds deluded, but it really seemed to make sense at the time. But in the in the in the process of of waiting for that to happen, I, I somehow woke up to how much suffering I was experiencing, and I was drawn um, to come to this group to, on, on Monday night. And I didn't I knew nothing about Buddhist meditation. I had taken transcendental meditation. So I just came and I sat for 45 minutes and I repeated this mantra. And when it was over, Gil gave this wonderful talk about the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is about the, the truth of suffering, that it seems to be part of life. And the honesty of that statement really struck me. I felt like I, in most places in my life, um, talk about personal suffering was excluded. That was kind of like showing that you weren't doing it right. There was some, some kind of a failure or some kind of a, um, a downer. So here was this man talking about suffering with um, a great deal of honesty and a great deal of um, compassion. And by the end of the night, I just knew 
this is where I wanted to be. This, this was home. And it really inspired me to keep coming week after week and, and starting to sit at home. And it was also tied somewhat with Gill specifically and, and also meeting at the Friends Meeting House. It's, it's really a, it was a wonderful place to meet. That I felt like that those were important parts of the experience. And listening to Gill was required in some ways. And that was useful. I mean, that was, that was a real useful first step for me. It's a little bit like, I guess, another area where I've seen this bright faith come forth is when I take people sailing for the first time. I have a 35-foot boat that has a 6,000-pound lead keel. And when we leave the dock, the boat is standing straight up and down. No problem. Everybody seems to be okay with that. And then we get out on the bay, and the first time the wind picks up, the boat starts to tip over. And it scares a lot of people who have never experienced that and you know, kind of imagine that with just a little bit more wind, we're going to turn all the way upside down and be swimming. And what most of them have told me is when that happens and the fear starts to arise, the first thing they do is they look at me and they see if I'm afraid. <laughs> and if I'm not afraid, if I'm sitting there kind of feeling confident and um, unperturbed by, by this change in um, angle, then they seem to be okay with it. They seem to relax, and, and even though they don't quite understand why the boat's not tipping over, they seem to have trust in me. So I think that that was kind of an experience of bright faith that I see over and over again. The, the thing about that is that it, it's, it's dependent on conditions, being around a certain teacher or or having certain things arise. And ultimately, it's important to move to the next stage of faith, which is um, verified faith, which is where you really start testing what it is that you have faith in. Let's see. So this is where um, the quality of investigation is very important to start looking at um, why do you trust what you're trusting? Um, I think for me, listening to to Dharma talks from more than just Gil, from from many teachers, Start help me see that they weren't all saying quite the same thing, that there seemed to be some something very personal about um, something very unique about each person's experience. And so I realized I couldn't just latch on to a particular teacher's description of reality and hope that that would be enough 
that I really needed to look at what happens in my own life, what happens in my own practice, what happens when I sit. Um, How does this mind work? And what is it that opens it up and what is it that closes it down? What what fears arise that I can look at and start to explore? And what fears arise that I'm just not willing to look at? You know, what, what things... I decided are are off bounds for the practice. I think my my first experience of this verifying faith came about a year and a half after I started to practice. Um, During all of that time, Gil would mention these 10-day retreats, these long retreats that people would go on. And at first they seemed incomprehensible. I mean, how could somebody sit in silence for 10 days? I mean, that must be something you do after 10 years of practice or something. But over time, having sat 45 minutes at a time and then having done sitting and walking for a whole day and then for a whole weekend, um, the idea of of sitting along retreats became appealing. I felt like I could open to um, seeing what, what I would learn from that experience. And so I sat a, a 10-day retreat at Vajrapani that um, Gil was one of the teachers for. And I really didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, I really, I had heard what happened to other people, but I really had no idea what would happen to me. Would I be able to sit through the aches and pains the, the restlessness, the sleepiness, and how would I know if I was successful? I had no idea of how that was going to work out. But I, before each sitting, I would just state to myself that I had an intention to sit through whatever it was that arose in that sitting. And as I would do that, I found that a certain confidence arose that that there was going to be something of value from sitting, the next sitting. And when the the retreat was over, I felt a certain elation. I sort of felt like, hey, I, I did it. You know, I, I did it. This was, this is, you know, um, sort of patted myself on the back. 
and thought, okay, well, now, now, now the hard part's over. And what happened next was really surprised me. As most of the retreatants left, John Travis, who was one of the other teachers, had asked people if they wanted to stay, and he would explain what some of the Tibetan tankas on the walls meant. And as he started to talk, I was just overwhelmed with um, a sadness. And I went outside and I just started to cry. I just, I, you know, I, I don't know what it was. And afterwards, I, I just felt so much release. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. And then the next thing that happened was I encountered this woman who I had decided I didn't like during the retreat. She kept coming and going in this big SUV, and she'd stir up dust on the road. And you know, I, I you know I thought she just you know she just didn't have the discipline it takes to sit this retreat. Well, as it turns out, it was John Travis's girlfriend. And I told her about how John's um, story had moved me to tears. And as I started to tell her this, I started crying again. And she held me in her arms as, as, she, as I cried. And all of, these, all of these judgments and thoughts that I had about her just like completely went out the window. And I realized what a beautiful human being she was. So... Um, and then driving home from that retreat, I felt like, I really felt like I was on drugs. I was so euphoric. I just couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't have imagined feeling as happy as I felt at the end of that retreat. And so that really kind of verified my faith in this practice. It really showed me what, what joy and what um, release and um, particularly what release from these crazy judgments that my mind makes was possible. The other experience of, um, of faith for me was in June, I sat a 14-day retreat with Gil at Chikoji. And after about 11 or 12 days, he suggested that I just go off and spend the next 24 hours reflecting on what it is, what, what is it that I believe about myself and about life? And why do I believe that? And so it was a real encouragement to to investigate what is it what is it that I believe and as I came out of that interview, I walked into the garden and, and sat and the very first thing that came up was i I realized that all my life I had been living my life believing that I didn't have what it takes to be happy. That there was something either kind of in my past or 
genetic or, you know, I don't know, just intellectual or whatever. There was something missing that precluded me from having what it took to be happy. And with a a still, clear mind, it was easy to see that and say, wow, that's an interesting belief. I wonder where that came from. And shortly thereafter, I I, I sort of remembered that, well, geez, that's sort of the central belief of the culture, that we don't have what it takes to be happy. You know, we need to buy what they're selling, you know, in the next ad. You know, you need to have a certain kind of vehicle or have a certain kind of meal or have a certain kind of relationship, um, that you can't be happy just as you are. You need something else. And as I could see that that was just a belief that I had picked up from television, radio, this, you know, the culture, I realized that I didn't have to take it so personally. And by doing that, I found all sorts of happiness just arising naturally, just sitting on a cushion. So it helped verify for me the importance of investigating what it was that, that, I, that I believed. See, there were um, the, the third stage of, of faith that um, Sharon describes is abiding faith. It's kind of the faith that's beyond just the cognitive verification of, of your faith to, to really having it like sink into your bones. That it, that, that it, um, is just the, the basis from which one acts and lives one's life. And I'd like to read kind of the last paragraph of this book. In which she sums up uh, abiding faith. Our passion, our joy, our calm, and our confidence are all rooted in this offering of our hearts to an expanded vision of who we truly are and the love and awareness we are capable of. With this understanding, we don't have to approach our suffering as though cut off from love and from the pulsing of life. We can remember that suffering doesn't have to close us down and lead us into despair, as though stranded in a world where goodness is for others and others exist at a distance from us. Holding this vision, we can emerge from whatever suffering we encounter, not broken and embittered, but with an ever-replenishing wellspring of unwavering faith. And let's see. to kind of in uh, there's a poem that I found that kind of, that I really like, that um, I think is related to this whole notion of 
faith. It's a poem by um, Mary Oliver called When Death Comes. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snap the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what it is going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. And each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So that's um, what I have to say about faith. And I'd really like to open it up for anybody that um, would like to share their notions of faith, uh, any questions you might have, or any stories or um, comments or be appreciated. Yes. Thank you. Sort of a surprise. I um, 
discussions with people, I came to sort of this understanding that, um, this is my mind, <clears throat> that a lot of, uh, all, all the scientific understanding is really this process of observing the world around you, uh, proposing you know, a hypothesis, testing it out, drop a ball, falls to the ground. Drop it a whole bunch more times because you fall on the ground. Pretty soon you say, well, when we drop balls, they fall to the ground. Um, and that's the leap of faith and sort of all of, really all of what we're doing here is um, there's nothing in those observations that says anything about the next time I drop the ball. It just says that every time I've done it, it falls to the ground. Mm. <clears throat> and um, so there's this measure of faith that next time I have a ball, I, I just assume there's something um, consistent in the universe, which there's really no basis for that faith. That when I walk out on the sidewalk, the concrete would be solid tomorrow like it was yesterday. Mm. But there's really no basis for that. And that we move forward sort of with this faith that, that there's meaning and understanding and consistency. And that things we observe over a lifetime, over many lifetimes, will go forth as they have. Which is, uh, so when I finally realized this was an abiding one that was sort of deep in my soul, which I didn't even recognize, but I just walk confidently down the sidewalk without fear Good. I started to examine what was my first experience of faith. And actually, as I started to think about it, as I kind of kind of let go of notions of church and theology and things like that, I think it was really, as, a, as an infant, I had faith that when I cried, my parents would come and feed me or hold me or take care of what needed to be taken care of. Um, and then with that, a certain, also a certain wisdom that they didn't always come when I wanted them to. <laughs> You know that there was that there's um, kind of a difference between hope, that is, wanting things the way you want them to happen, and faith, which is just that something will happen to you know to to provide for you. So. Um, I'm not quite sure what what to do with that, other than to kind of kind of see that that for me faith didn't start four and a half years ago when I came to hear Gil talk, but it actually started I don't know it's like fifty years ago when I first took my first breath. Yes. in my practice, when I first started sitting in Zen retreats, which are extremely difficult, and 
wonderful things there were to go and do and you know see and uh, experience. And um, you know there was always two or three things I wanted to do in any given evening. And this was a source of a great deal of suffering because I was always sure I was at the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you. Actually, it reminds me of uh, lyrics of a Beatles song from All You Need Is Love, where they sing, there's nowhere you can be which isn't where you're meant to be. And I heard that over and over again, you know, 40 years ago, and it took quite a while to, for it to sink in or to actually uh, believe that. teenager, I was involved in a yoga group and philosophy that uh, basically taught us that if we just kind of kept a white light around everything, everything would be okay, you know, nothing bad would happen, and all good things would ha- come to you, and uh, so for that period of my life, I, I was really, really that very strong, and I would do a lot of, you know, hitchhike alone all over the place, and, you know, and all these, I felt really protected, and nothing bad would happen, and it was like this very naive faith that, um, you know, that that everything everything had to be okay to have faith. You know, that faith meant that everything was going well. And later in life, you know, when things started not going well, <laughs> mm. and um, and having to find the faith that I could be with whatever happens in my life, that could meet my life. And that was, for me, the beginning of a real verified faith and the touching of an abiding faith. Mm. Yeah, thank you. What helped you make that transition? Um, I think it just a really deep searching of, of what was really going on inside me. You know, um, you 
know, a lot of painful, <laughs> a lot of painful feelings connecting to a lot of, uh, of, you know, a lot of practice. There was a line that I liked quite a bit in this in this book uh, by Sharon, which which she said that suffering is the proximate cause of faith. It's kind of like if everything's going all right, you really don't need to develop much faith. You know, it's just things just kind of go along and and. Uh, You don't, one typically doesn't feel as compelled to, to investigate or to, to really stop. And um, notice, notice the, the closing down and the, the feeling of separateness. Wonderful. Let's see if there's nothing else, um, why don't we sit for uh, uh, maybe another 15 minutes? So may whatever benefit and merit came from our sitting together this evening, may that be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you for your practice.